thanks for everyone that's tuned in already. I'm glad you can hear. There's Mark. Hey. <laughs> oh, should I have to go sideways? Wait. I don't know. <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know. Oh. Odd. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Not that way. <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> um, wait. So, how do I get right side? Uh, your right side up to me. Happening? I don't know if maybe your screen. But just sideways oh. when I do this. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> Once you guys can see me. And see me and hear us. Is that good? So. This is totally sideways. So, if I look like I'm not looking at you, that's because. Yeah, I don't know. It looks great and it's working. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are, oh, you straight now. We are 18 minutes into the four o'clock hour and we apologize sincerely. Zoom seems to have been acting up. Nonetheless, thank you guys for joining us for our first installment of Siren Sundays. I know a lot of people were kind of like, what is Siren Sundays? You know, sounding the alarm, but you know, sirens are mermaids, as am I. And just as sirens like to sing and bring people upon the rocks to crash, I think I should use my powers for good and educate people about the rocks that we all live on, you know? So today, of course, we're talking about lunarscaping. And I have Mark, who is one of the coolest people I've met in my conservation career thus far. So if you want to, <laughs> do you want to take some time to just introduce yourself and let us know about you. Who I am and why I'm sitting here. Yes. Um, so good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Daniels. Um, by training, I am a botanist. Um, I did my postgraduate degree in botany at Miami University. Um, but apart from that, I've had a, a wealth of experience working at the Bahamas National Trust along with Ashanti and a number of my colleagues on this video. And uh, as you know, in protecting uh, national parks and protected areas, you go in all types of environments. You you move through nature pretty readily, you get involved in research. So there's a wealth of experience there um, with regards just to being out in nature. Um, and before that, well, I guess during that process, I also had some experience doing hydroponics farming, um, organic farming. I had a, a group of us called Homegrown that did backyard farming classes and landscaping. And so anything related to plants, I'm typically excited about. So. Um, I think uh, Shanti and I, we had a chat uh, just about, you know, some of the things that aren't always in your scientific journals and some of the more esoteric, quote unquote, things or traditional or cultural practices. And then that's where the idea for this talk came up, because I like that as well. I understand the, um, the importance of traditional folklore, culture. Uh, myths, mythologies, all these things, uh, they all they all have a role to play in our understanding of this world we live in. So I am excited to be here and chat about this. Definitely, and I'm excited to have you. Um, so like I said earlier, we're talking about lunarscaping, or some people can term it celestial planting, which is all about why do people decide to go with the phases of the moon to plant these things? And I know that you would have been the most ideal person to talk about this. So can you just tell us maybe about some of the traditional planting that we as Bahamians have done over the years in regards to following the moon cycles and why? Well, I'm gonna step it back further and try to, let's talk about where we, where this practice maybe came from now. Um, you know, we all did, uh, first of all, um, uh, we might've all watched Sesame Street at some point and there's a character on there called Super Grover and Super Grover's best power, or his only power, is the power of observation. And the power of observation is really what has led to much of our agricultural and farming practice, not only here in the Bahamas, but across the planet. You know, you go in biology or agricultural class high school and they teach you about the ancient Egyptians and how their contributions to agriculture still influences our practices today. And a lot of that has to do with their cultural practice of observing nature and the elements and the natural processes and cycles that exist. And this doesn't come from observing nature for a season or two. This is uh, centuries of observation that's a cultural practice. 
And so specifically for the Nile, much of their uh, observation would have been around the operations of the, the, uh, the Nile River and how that river would flood and inundate the banks, bringing rich mineral deposits uh, to the land as a part of their annual cycle for farming and planting. And so survival was intimately connected to nature and those natural processes that exist in the world around us. And that civilization took the time and energy to observe that, document it, and pass it along from generation to generation. And weave that entire principle of observing nature, not only into farming, but every fabric of their culture and society. So we can talk about that at some other time. But for farming, <laughs> yes, um, observing the cycles of nature. And so for, if we are talking about the moon, uh, we know the moon is kind of what, a 29 and a half day cycle, lunar cycle. And one of the things that has been observed over time that we know here in the Bahamas is that the tides tend to follow the moon. And so uh, we see that during a new moon or a full moon, the tides tend to be higher than uh, when there is, than the, during in between phases. And similar to how the tides will rise on the sea, our local farmers would have noticed uh, that the water in the ground, it also has a pull effect from the moon. And so groundwater would also be affected by the phase of the moon and its position relative to the earth. Uh, the moon is closer to the earth, and so its gravitational pull is stronger than that of the sun. So it has more influences, more influence on the tide than the sun. So, for example, if you're going to sow seeds, right, let's say you didn't have any water, right? You didn't have a bucket of water. Maybe you have a blue hole that's nearby. But if you wanted to have the best chance for your seeds uh, to germinate, we know that for germination, you need moisture, the right temperature, um, darkness, and, and, and one or two other factors probably in the soil. Um, that moisture component at the new moon and the full moon, when the moon is said to pull that water through the soil close to the surface, it would guarantee your seeds stay saturated over a consistent period and increase your germination rate. Uh, to take that a step further, uh, once your plants are actually growing, this, this dynamic influence is also observed in the internal uh, water uh, storage within the plant itself. So for example, if you have a tomato plant and if you were to, I guess, observe the movement or the concentration of water moving through the plant during the full moon or approaching the full moon or the new moon, it would be said that the the moisture accumulates in the upper portions of the plants. So that's in the branches and the stems and the leaves and in the fruit. And if you were a traditional farmer following those practices, you would also say that this is the best time to harvest once your fruit is ripe, because all of that good energy and all of that moisture is now resting in the fruit of the plant or in the leaves of the plant that you're harvesting. Similarly, when there is less impact of groundwater by the moon. It's, it's said that the water will fall into the ground. And so for example, uh, during the, uh, so waxing would be when the moon is approaching full and waning would be after it is past full. So during the waxing period, you would plant leafy crops or plants that would have, uh, let's say annuals, it has fruit that you wanna, you, wanna, you wanna reap, eggplant, tomatoes, cucumbers, those things. During the waning part of the, of the cycle as this groundwater is falling into the ground. It's also said that if you plant your root crops during the waning portion, that will increase the chance of success. And also, if you have these plants established in your farm and on your garden, that during, uh, during let's say, the, the interperiods, where it's neither the full moon or the new moon, uh, let's say the quarter moons, then the, where groundwater or the, let's call it the vibes, have now <laughs> left the up the above ground portions of your plant and have now accumulated in the roots. So your root crops are better harvested during the waning period of the of the moon cycle. So your potatoes and your uh, carrots and beets and, and those things, your peanuts and things like that. So generally that's in a nutshell what some people, how some people may practice farming with relation to the moon cycle. And there's other uh, celestial bodies out there that certain groups of farmers 
would pay attention to during their planting phase uh, or during the farming season to give them uh, clues or indications as to what to do um, with their crop or with their, let's say their soil or their water. And that's a whole other philosophy of farming uh, that we can, we'll get to that too, but we were talking about the moon. So let's stop right. there. I'm just going to keep rambling. Right. Very interesting. And I think you said something that I know, and one of the things that I'm trying to do with this show is like breaking out of this silo where I feel like we're in this environmental community. We know the things that we're talking about, but oftentimes when we try to take that out of the environmental sector, when you say things like the moon controls the tide, right? People don't really automatically understand that or know what that means because it's never been something, I guess, relevant to their field of study. You know, I didn't even plug in me being a marine biologist. It's always important for us to monitor the tides because we need to jump in the water and you being a botanist, you know, the groundwater concept. So I think just noting for people that the gravitational pull of our round earth so sorry, flat earthers. Our round earth is what, <laughs> is what dictates those tides. And, and we do have those freshwater lens here in the Bahamas in our, I think it's focused in our pine yep. forest, correct? Where you see most of those freshwater lens. Right. Yeah, but and you can also find them in those dunes, those like Holocene, Pleistocene dunes that are uh, relatively close to the shoreline. So you can find water and sand as well. Right. So, all right. So which means like you were saying, when the tides are high and the moon is pulling, that's closer to the surface. So I just wanted to bring that note in just for anyone who's watching and has no idea about tides, just in case. Um, but I yeah, um, that, that other method that um, it's called, um, oh, it just slipped my mind, biodynamic farming. Okay. So just, and so that's where people are actually looking at the constellations and they say, oh, well, cancer has this influence on this uh, particular element. And they, when they're building their soils and making compost and compost teas and other fertilize, organic fertilizers for their farm, they are paying attention to other celestial bodies. And it's a, it's a whole science behind it. Some call it a pseudoscience, <laughs> but I guess only the practitioners could really, could really vouch for it. Please check it out. It's a, Biodynamic farming, it's interesting. It does sound interesting. And do you think, is this something that you've tried before, like any sort of backyard farming where you are now following the moon or any celestial bodies? And you've like kind of proven this theory? Uh, not, not the biodynamic farming. That one was, that's, that requires a, that you're paying a lot of attention to certain stars and constellations. And the almanac helps. And there's a, there's a, there's a school of study behind it. Um, I think it was founded by a German um, agriculturalist. Uh, I'm not sure how long ago, but there is a school of thought and study behind it. I, I've never went that um, extreme, but only those who, who've really tried it can validate right. um, Apart from that, it's your basic, you know, you know the times of the year, you know, summer's approaching, you know, all right, it's hurricane season, you know that the winds are shifting. And so, you know, during the hotter summer months, the wind tends to come from the east. In the colder months, the wind is coming from the west and north, northwest. Um, and I think every farmer, no matter if you're an old school farmer who's been doing it for 60 years somewhere in Can Island, or you're the new backyard farmer that has a little grow box with some stuff in your yard, that you automatically pay attention to the weather and the climate, whether or not you admit it. So you want it to rain. You don't want it to rain excessively and drown your plants, but you, you, you pay attention to the days where you feel like, okay, it's going to rain today. Or if it's an overcast day, then you know, okay, I'm, I can water my plants maybe a bit later, but if it's a clear day and the sun is blazing, you're not going to water your plants after a certain time because you risk burning your plants. That, that water, that residual water on the leaves um, will burn your plant. And so you know you need, to, you need to water early in the morning. So we're in the summertime now. And where are we? June? What's today's day? June 28th. So we're approaching July. So, you know, people would have planted now. They're probably harvesting uh, peppers. Um, strawberries are still growing now. Um, those warm summer crops, those okra, bean, corn, all of the squashes. So your pumpkins and um, cucumbers, your, pump, uh, uh, your butternut squashes and those things, pole beans, those things are all growing nicely now. Um, you're going to get to the part of the summer where it's going to be too hot. Well, we're already at the point where it's too hot to grow certain things. So usually your leafy greens are the first ones to go once it gets too hot. 
and your leafy greens, yes, your lettuce, kale, um, and, and things like that, all your, all your lovely different greens that you love to put in your smoothies. Um, right now in the summertime, it's hard for them to grow under full sun uh, without any sort of uh, assistance from its farmer. So you see that the leafy greens would, right now, if you wanna grow leafy greens, either you're growing it in a hoop, uh, hoop house, a greenhouse, or indoors hydroponically uh, in some controlled environment. Um, and you know, we have the traditional way of farming, but technology isn't a bad thing. And we've, there, there's certain things now that helps you to extend your growing season. So the old almanac that would tell you, don't plant uh, lettuce or leafy greens in June, that's if you're planting out in the field. If you have an indoor setup, a hydroponic setup, you have a really nice ventilated and climate controlled greenhouse, or you've put some effort into the placement of your bed into a, the cooler portion, of your yard and you have a hoop house, all those things will give you, um, a, a extend your growing season to, to varying lengths, depending on the, the technique you're using. So traditional methods are always good. However, now we're in a not so, um, one, especially with, you know, the uncertainty and the dependence, uh, uncertainty with regards to, uh, let's say being locked down under this COVID-19 environment, uh, the uncertainty of food security and whether or not food will be coming uh, on the ships and so forth and so on. Um, but also with regards to the climate, we can't forget that climate change is still, uh, we're in the, the midst of it. And although it's not, a, it's not a doom and gloom scenario from my standpoint, it's just like Super Grover says, you have to use your power of observation so that we survive, to learn to adapt. So you know, maybe before when it was, um, you were able to grow your uh, crops in a wetland area that was saturated with fresh water and maybe on the edge of a marshland, that as time goes on, let's say either A, you have seawater inundation from a storm, or you have the groundwater being uh, influenced by the saltwater layer due to sea level rise, those areas that were wet and traditionally freshwater uh, base may not be as fresh in the future. It may become more hypersaline. And so some of those ponds that would have been freshwater ponds are gonna start to increase in salinity. And, they're, 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 and you can observe those changes by watching the plant life around the edges and observing what's growing in there. And you don't have to be a biologist or a, a life scientist. Once again, you just use your powers of observation and you also contact other farmers and, and, and learn because things are changing. And so either you have to adapt to survive. Um, and so either you change the, the way you grow, where you grow, the technology you're using, um, or it's gonna become more and more difficult for you to stick in your traditional methods. Now, not to say traditional methods uh, will fail, traditional methods, once again, are the foundation. So yes, you still watch your moon. You, you, you're watching, uh, you know when rough weather is coming because you see the shorebirds coming from a particular direction. Or uh, you can tell that your ground is maybe high in uh, limestone or too alkaline because there's a certain type of plant that's dominating uh, that, that landscape. If you go, um, you know, if you go into a recently dug up, say like a quarry pit, you know, those weeds that love to grow in that really alkaline, sterile soil, those give you an indication to what your soil is actually doing. Um, traditional farmers may not have tested their soil as much, but in this day and time, uh, I wouldn't say as much, there would have been other means for them to verify uh, what's in their soil besides saying, I'm gonna send it off to a lab and get my full readout. They, they would know how they've been amending their soils and would have done things to make sure that all those micronutrients are there. So whether it was, it was burning the conch shell and crushing that and adding that there, or they were using the Epsom salt, um, they're using particular leaves from certain plants to, to add to their soil. There's always a knowledge behind it, using crab shells and crushing that in your compost so that you're adding calcium. There's, there's still things that the traditional farming methods tell us, teach us. We just have to be aware that things are changing. So. Keep your, keep your eyes open and be willing to adapt and try something new. Definitely. And we got a question for, yeah, a question from Lindy. Hi, Lindy. 
also a former <laughs> co-worker. Um, he was saying, how does climate change impact the creation of almanacs? And I know you mentioned that, you know, there were almanacs created by these farmers over the years, but as we see the weather is changing, I, well, we never had a definite like winter and fall. It was always like summer here and then occasionally a cooler time of year. But how do, how, do, how does climate change come into all of this when we have our farming methods and these almanacs? Yes. Yeah, so these almanacs, once again, that's based off of years of farmers and, um, and their observations, their agricultural practices that they would have done uh, themselves or learned from other farmers, other cultures, and this massive knowledge that's accumulated over the years. Now we're in an unprecedented time, um, some would say, and so the unpredictability or the uncertainty uh, is, is um, you're not as certain anymore that at the start of that, that the rains won't come until until April, and, or that the beginning of summer is is June twenty first. You know, from back in June, from June first, it was hot, and some people would say from May first that hurricane season should start because it felt it was humid and, and there was lots of rain and it was, the oceans were hot and things like that. So it it requires one to have a knowledge of of what's what's out there. So the almanacs are still valid. Um, however, you must always be ready for the uncertainty. And so I would say some of those practices that may not be necessarily, uh, let's say, uh, unique to the almanac, but just what farmers should be thinking about in general is how to, how to increase your resi the resiliency of your farm. So think of the major inputs for your farm and how you can control or increase resiliency in that. So one, water. Right. So if we're getting to periods of time where rain, uh, the rain periods aren't as certain, then that we need to get into storage of water or finding ways to harvest water that can benefit your farm. And so, yes, when that instead of having those three uh, large washouts uh, in June, maybe that's now spread out that you're having one washout a month or now you're having six a month. And so if you're having, if you're responding to droughts, then you need to, you need to think about water storage. Um, if you are responding to excessive rain, then you need to be, then when you're designing your farm, then you need to think of some of the things you can include in your farm design that can help you with some of these issues. So to prevent flooding, make sure your fields are elevated or make sure there's good drainage. Uh, you know, when you, when you're planting in a hole, you know, make sure you have some gravel down at the bottom to facilitate that drainage um, into, into, into the surrounding soil. Uh, and there's other techniques that you could, you could incorporate into your farm to, to account for uh, excessive rain. You can build ponds. To, so you can have essentially uh, rainwater ponds that can, let me stick a pin right here. So where this is kind of going is into a conversation of permaculture. Yeah. So permaculture is this idea that um, you've designed your grow operation or your farm in a way that over time you are increasing your output while decreasing your inputs. You know, as, um, as biologists or as people familiar with life sciences, we understand that the cycles are important. And so, and how, and how each organism within the ecosystem interacts with one another. And so, um, when I mentioned having the pond on the property to catch water, that sparked the, the, the thought of permaculture. So you have a situation where you're capturing, you're not wasting any of your inputs, quote unquote. So when you harvest, let's say your leafy greens or you harvest your composting, right? Um, composting is something that's always spoken about. Uh, people say, you know, save your kitchen scraps, put them in the bucket in your backyard and break down, it works. Um, in a farming system, a good farmer will incorporate the harvesting of whichever greens that aren't being used and the browns, which are your dry paper-like material or uh, non-living material, um, collecting that from your farm, making sure nothing is going to waste and being recycled. Um, a part of that too is, uh, are the animals. And so even if you are a person that may not be a meat eater, uh, animals are still an important part of the ecosystem in, an, in a permaculture setting and on a farm setting. Uh, having chickens around, they help with pest control. Uh, they assist with fertilizing uh, because as they go through and they're picking at insects in the grass or through your crops, uh, 
uh, they're also scratching and pooping. And so they're effectively fertilizing and adding to uh, and amending your soil as they go along. Um, goats are in the same way. Now you have to keep the goats away from the important crops. Goats will eat your thing, right? And then you'll have some curry mutton later, right? So goats are a, are a good are a good addition to a small permaculture operation. If you have you know small little lamb, rabbits, um, or also some uh, another animal that contribute to that cycle of the permaculture garden. Uh, you can have ducks as well, uh, geese, and, and things like that. So birds. Um, we talked about lamb or goat. If you if you want if you have the space, then yeah, you can have a cow. Uh, the point is that you're you're being aware of the cycles and the processes that will keep your farm going. Um, in addition to that, you're, you're planting. You're not planting in a traditional row. So I think I had mentioned earlier, if you are a corn, you're a corn farmer, you would say, oh, I only need about a foot and a half, uh, you know, square feet around each plant um, for, for to grow my corn, and then you just have a row of thousands of corn. However, the, another farmer would look at that and see the stalk of that corn as a pole. Um, and so I can grow pole beans on that, um, or string beans that will run up the corn and it will not impact the, the viability of the corn, but you're, you're, you're taking advantage of the grow space and what nature has given you. That practice right there, that's something that's been going on for centuries. The Native Americans did it. Uh, they had a, 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 an essentially a, a planting system incorporating corn, beans, and tobacco, and they can grow that in very tight spaces, so to speak, because utilizing the structure and the architecture of the plant and the knowledge of their their, their growth requirements. Um, so yeah, so perma, a permaculture type of setup, you won't have to essentially reseed the plants after a while. Um, if you have leafy greens and herbs and other things growing, you're going to recognize, okay, I'm going to harvest from this section, that section over there, I'm going to allow it to go to seed and just wild sprout. And what you will find that as the, the seasons go on, as you expand your garden, you're making sure you're capturing water, you're harvesting energy from the sun in the form of compost that's now amending your soil. Um, you have your plants arranged where certain plants are beneficial to one another. They, they enhance each other's growing uh, condition. And so you have that knowledge. And so you plant uh, companion plants together. There are certain plants you'll have in your garden in this permaculture or this uh, ecological farm that you will not harvest from. One, you're going to plant some things that, you know what, the pests really like that. So whether that's some wild callaloo or some other type of spinach um, or leafy green, that you have a section that you know what, I'm going to plant those over there and I'm going to allow them to eat that, right? Because they're going to be a part of this ecosystem too. But in addition to that, I'm also going to attract those beneficial insects that are going to eat those pests. So some of those beneficial insects are your ladybugs and your wasps, um, you know, you those aphids and whatnot that love to eat the, the new green parts of your plant, uh, the wasps and the baby um, uh, ladybugs, they devour them. They're like your best, one of your best lines of defense. and um, just having a, a robust diversity of insects will help. So there will be those that would love to feed on your plants. And yeah, you will sacrifice some leaves and some plants, but the beneficial insects, once you're encouraging their growth or their habitat, you leave wildflowers growing along your perimeter of your farm. Um, and that will just keep the insect life uh, bubbling. So it's safe to say biodiversity is key. <laughs> Biodiversity is key. I mean, even earthworms, right? You know, um, you know, the composting with earthworms, adding earthworms to your soil. Once again, that's a that's a consistent uh, cycle, a nutrient cycle. You're you're um, you're promoting by having earthworms in your soil. So you'll get to the point where you know what? You actually don't need to compost so much because as this leaf dries and dies and falls into the soil and gets integrated because the chicken has come through and scratched it into the soil, then those earthworms that are there, they're going to grab onto that. They're going to chew that up and turn that into worm castings. And, you know, my, my, my soil is being fertilized for me. And so that's the idea. You know, one of the things that made me want to do this topic, well, besides the fact that I wanted you to be my first guest, um, I noticed <laughs> over the lockdown, a lot, a lot, a lot of people 
turned into these mini farmers. I've been seeing posts where people are now planting their own herbs in their windowsill. They're, they're creating pallet gardens, cement blocks and things like that to create this space. And I felt like a lot of people would benefit from, you know, this just basic, simple advice. And so in your opinion, what are some of the best things to plant and have that, I think you called it co, what was the word? What was the term you said again? Co uh, you mean like with the whole thing, like what plants grow well together? Um, what are ideal for behemoths to grow? And like specifically for, so for right now, you know, like what, what are some of the things that are good to plant right now? Yep. So let's start with, okay. The name of uh, the series, what's the name of our series? Siren Sundays, right? Being, and we're being hosted by the Sustainable Lifestyle. Is that the thing? Sustainable. Yes. So, so it's a lifestyle, right? So once you've, you've decided, okay, I am going to grow something I will take care of and then eventually eat, right? That's a lifestyle. Um, and so whether you are a home grower with a small herb box in your window, or you're a full-fledged farmer, that new farmer that you've had 10 acres sitting there doing nothing, and now you're, you're kind of getting into it. Um, it's a lifestyle, right? So it's, it's all about knowing what you're growing and why you're growing it. So for example, if I am living in a, in a little apartment building and I don't have much yard space, I can't expect to grow pumpkins and sweet potatoes and a whole bunch of bananas and plantains and things like that. You have to know the space that you're working with, right? Um, and why are you growing it? Are you growing to provide yourself with just this one thing that you really like to eat? Or is your objective to never go to the supermarket again? And so that's, that's the idea, right? Know why you're growing. If you're growing just to have, you know what? I really like fresh basil when I make my pasta, so I'm just going to grow basil. Then, then you know why you're growing. But if you're like, you know, I don't want to go to the supermarket for six weeks because I can grow, I can walk in my yard and I can harvest tomatoes and harvest my peppers and things like that, then then that's your objective. Once you know why you're growing, then you can go to how will you grow and what will you grow. So one thing I've we would have told people back when we were doing our backyard farming uh, was, you know, make a list of your kitchen vegetables. Make a list of what's in your fridge right now. Right? Uh, what are the things you like to eat? What are the things you consume on a regular basis? For most people, we just say, okay, think of what you put in cold slow, think of what you put in your house salad, um, and things like that. And that's usually tomato, some form of tomato, carrot, cabbage, sweet pepper, um, some sort of hot pepper, and things like that. So you have your list, right? Um, then you have to look at, okay, what time of year is it? So right now in the summer, so if you want to grow anything that's leafy, you need to be sure you have it protected in some sort of control environment. So you can have it in a hoop house, uh, in a shaded area, or inside hydroponically under lights. Um, you, if you have the, the space and want to maximize what's good right now, peppers are growing wonderfully. Uh, you can still get some of the, the, the cherry and grape tomatoes going. Those usually have warm climate varieties that right now in the summer, you those plum tomatoes and cherry and grape tomatoes, those are awesome. Uh, you may have a, you may have some issues with larger beefsteak tomatoes, uh, but once again, uh, we we live in a place where you can grow year-round once you are um, adapting your growing method to the time of year. So right now, you may need to have certain uh, if you're growing certain tomato species that prefer cooler uh, the cooler months, you need to have those in a hoop house or in a greenhouse. Um, under the right temperature and humidity. If you just want to plant something outside and you know it can grow, pumpkin, watermelon, okra, uh, those things are uh, flourishing right now. Okay? Uh, yes, those are cool earrings, right? And those are jacaranda, right? <laughs> from the Cook Island. The, the, oh. They're made Yeah, it looked like the jacaranda. Sorry, okay. let me stick to fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a plumeria, right, frangipani? Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> it looks like it. Um, so yeah, it's it's hot now, and so uh, you can get the hot climate cucumbers to grow, uh, but they're going to be sensitive. You need to make sure that you're really taking care of those as well. Um, but you're, what you're really approaching now, if you're a traditional farmer, is you're approaching probably the last harvest sometime in July, 
um, of a lot of your major fruiting crops. And you can plant now, but you may not get the, the benefit out of it if you were to wait to plant until, let's say, September. So this is the time of year where some farmers go follow. And so essentially what they do is instead of having your farm uh, growing some sort of fruit bearing crop that's extractive, um, that's extractive and is removing large amounts of nutrients from the soil that you're actually planting something that will add nutrients back to the soil. And so a lot of times these are nitrogen fixing plants that may be adding new, uh, nitrogen back to your soil because of the depletion that's happened over the past season. And so this is a time where farmers, they take their last um, harvest, especially the ones of the, the, the temperature sensitive crops, those that you know, like the okra and some of the corn and pumpkin, those can go on into the summer, but other parts of their fields that would have had some of the sensitive crops, those are essentially weeded up. Those crops are now sitting somewhere trying to compost and they're probably reseeding with some sort of nitrogen fixer to now amend their soil. And that could be anything from peanuts to clover, uh, usually the legumes, uh, the pea family, by nature, they're nitrogen fixers. And so they'll add nitrogen back to your soil. Uh, depending on the type of farmer, they'll, they'll be going either for organic um, amendments or inorganic or synthetic um, amendments for their soil. This is the time to start to work on and, and get your soil ready for the next growing season. And planning is a big part of it as well. So if you knew you grew, you've grown tomatoes in this one plot for the past two seasons, maybe it's time to rotate. And so crop rotation is a big part of this, this, this time of year as well, where you're not having something actively growing, so you can actively plan out what will go where on your farm and how you need to amend that soil. So if you do have access to soil testing, you get your soil tested so you know that, okay, this part of my field is deficient in nitrogen and magnesium because I had a, you know, really leafy, uh, leafy green type of product here or magnesium or one of the other microelements because it's a heavy fruit bearing plant. And so this is the time where you're planning what's going to be uh, put down for the next season and where that's going to go. Uh, so you're letting your land go follow. That's what a lot of traditional farmers might be doing now. And you might see their farms just weedy and just things kind of overgrown. The pumpkins are running around and the sweet potato running wild. Um, but this is kind of that time. So, and that, you know, I always feel like I come up with these very curious questions because um, I always admit my ignorance on topics that I know nothing about. And when it comes to the Bahamas, I know, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eleuthera has one of the better types of soil and it was influenced by the Sahara dust. Am I correct? Because I know the Sahara dusting, it seems to be really popular this year. But I, if I recall, we get that every year. I guess just this year is very thick. How does that come into play with with our islands and the quality of like fertile soil across the chain of islands here. Yep. So that um, that red Sahara dust that that is essentially provided the Bahamas uh, in in particular with um, life sustaining nutrients and micro elements. Let's say it like that um, for centuries. Uh, we are essentially we've been built on what's called uh, these paleo salt, paleo salt, sorry, which is really, these really old layers of dirt in the ground that is lithified and turned into rock. And so mentioned um, Eleuthera, uh, but other islands like Cat Island and other hilly islands, they too have accumulated a lot of this red soil. Uh, you'll find that in Eleuthera, that's where traditionally people plant their pineapples in. You go in Gregory Town, you go in Hatchet Bay, and 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 other parts across Eleuthera, uh, Tarpon Bay, right? Uh, and you'll find that you, you get these pockets of rich uh, rich red soil. Um, if you go to the Levy Preserve, you go to the edible history section at the back, you can see that that, that soil there is an example of this, um, this red lateritic soil. And it's said that it's iron rich, but it also contains other elements in it as well that one, provide the basis for uh, the, the nutrients and nutrient availability in our soils, but also provides food for our coral reefs. So the same way those organics, are, and yeah, we can, we can talk about the reef, right? The forests of the sea, right? So th that red soil is, is feeding our reefs uh, as well. And it's an integral part of our bigger, 
uh, the bigger picture, which is that the world is this interconnected living organism, right? And yes, it may, everyone may be paying attention to the dust storm as, as far as, oh yeah, it's going to help suppress hurricanes or, oh, and I have to worry for my allergies. Uh, looking at that, but at, at a very simple, basic level, that is the planet feeding itself and nourishing itself. And a part of those cycles where the same way our ocean currents carry carry uh, minerals and carry other things, carry our conk, carry our ocean resources elsewhere around the world, right? So we're this this living organism. So that's one example of that. But yes, that red dirt, if you go to Luthra, near to the glass window bridge, you can see in those cliff faces uh, where the rock is fractured, you can see the lines. Um, you can see the, the what do you call it? The stratigraphy. You can see those horizontal horizontal lines in the rock, right? That, that shows that red layer. That shows the paleo salts that would have been deposited there hundreds of thousands of years ago and over and over again. So it just shows that how long this process has been happening. So no need to comment, right? Right. Beth, thanks for that. Because I know a few people messaged me and was like, what is this Sahara dust thing? And I'm like, guys, can we just calm down? Because it's it's normal. And just to touch one more point on Eleuthera, this is more, I guess, a personal question that hopefully benefits other people. I know that we have this thing here called the pineapple season. And if anybody knows me well, they know I'm obsessed with Eleuthera and pineapples. FYI, anyone watching, if you feel like gifting me one, I am here and I am ready. But I always wondered why we are only getting pineapples once a year. Like, is it because it takes so long to grow so farmers only want to invest the energy to get it one time a year or is it because that's the only ideal time to really get these pineapples from this Eleutheran soil oh and long island i think also um, the yeah and you got long island Cat island they have their pineapple there too i've seen some in andres um and so pineapple is one of those plants that if you from a from slip which is the little mini uh sucker that's going to pop off on the side or you you chop off the top of your pineapple when you receive it. Uh, usually it's about an 18-month process to get to fruit. So that's a year and a half. Um, uh, now, in that process, in terms of when uh, those pineapples will fruit, so, you know, each plant has its own internal biological clock. Um, and for, especially for fruiting and flowering, um, there there's essentially plants recognize the change in one angle of the sun and the intensity of the sun uh the hours of direct sunlight it's getting um and and what and the spectrum of the which part of the light spectrum is being uh, exposed to and all of those things provide signals to these plants for their different growth stages um i am not a pineapple farmer um but around this time of year uh where we're receiving more sunlight uh, direct sunlight than in the winter than in the winter months. That essentially, I would say that. And to go back to pineapples are they are heavy feeders, right? So a part of this too is that farmers are fertilizing their plants accordingly, uh, because you want your plants essentially to be robust into a certain size uh, before uh, you quote unquote allow them to go to fruit. And so you can probably get your pineapples to fruit early or at some other point of the year uh, by adding a, a different ratio of fertilizer to signal the fruiting process and the, flower, sorry, the flowering process. The farmers, they would know that if I were to plant this uh, pineapple here and just let it go naturally, it's gonna take 18 months and it's gonna fruit in the summertime. So if you're working with your plant's natural biological cycle and Maybe some other pineapple farmer or pineapple farmer can come on and we can talk about pineapple. We can have pineapple Sunday, right? Right? Because I think it's a great topic. Um, you know, they they would probably know that I'm I'm supporting vegetative growth for the next year and a half. I'm getting these plants as big and robust because the bigger the, the stock plant I have when it's time for a fruit, that's going to support this fruit set, and I'm going to get a nice juicy fruit that's going to be. Uh, pest-free and disease-resistant and all these things. And so, uh, you probably, like I said, you probably could get it to fruit at a different time of the year, but your fruit may not set properly. The flower may never may never go to fruit. Uh, it's also about um, all these conditions tied into one. I, I can't say right now who the main pollinators would be for the pineapple 
or if they require pollination. I can't remember right now if they self-fertilize, uh, but that may also be a part of it as well, that it's a time of year when their flowering coincides with what's happening in the environment, but also which pollinators are present and facilitating that process. And I feel like they, they, um, they don't require pollination, even though some pineapple do produce seed, if you look. And so, anyway, that's, we need to have a pineapple talk. We need to have pineapple. Any of y'all ever cut pineapple open and see the seed along the skin? You know, that's a really lutra pineapple. This ain't no, no dole imported, nothing. Look out for the seed. Oh, okay. That would be fun. I think post-COVID, when the world comes down, it'd be good to do these kind of things where we're like, we're going to cut open the different fruits. Because I know, just to throw in another fun fruit fact that I know, because it's very limited, the fact that, I feel like I'm going to mess this up. The strawberry is, no, is a strawberry an aggregate fruit? But it's different. What is like? It's a fun fact about <laughs> strawberry that I, like it slips me now. It's escaping me. Or is it the tomato? It's the tomato. That's not, it's not a fruit. It's a vegetable. What am I saying? Well, essentially, the tomato tomatoes essentially people would say it's a vegetable, but the tomato itself is a fruit, right? The same way the eggplant is a fruit, or the, that a pepper is a fruit. It is the fruit of the plant, and technically a vegetable from a, from a botanical perspective and anatomy perspective would be one of the vegetative parts. So the leaf, the root, the branch, right? That would be the vegetable or the vegetative part, but the fruit would be anything that goes from flower um, and it sets as a fruit. Now, when it comes to how we eat food, that's not how it always uh, translates. We think of fruit as sweet and juicy, that we can make a smoothie and that anything that's like, bitter that goes into a salad is just a vegetable but there's there's a line there so like broccoli essentially is a flower it's a it's an immature um inflorescence for the for the broccoli plant and direct relation to cauliflower or are they just cousins yes <laughs> well in the same plant family right i think they're what brassica brassicaceae yeah <laughs> and i know last thing <laughs> fruit topic I think I've also heard bananas are not fruit, they're herbs. Is that something you've ever heard before? I'm like bringing all the fruit myths well, now. So yeah, that's fine. You're getting fruity, right? Uh, so the banana, it, in terms of the type of plant it is, it is a herb because it doesn't contain woody tissue, right? And so if you're looking at the description of a plant, you go back to Botany 101, and you're learning about uh, monocots versus dicots, um, and you learn that one of the defining features between a monocot is that uh, it does not have a cambial layer that will produce tissue. And so you tend to find that uh, monocots are, don't have a woody layer and do not grow, uh, I don't say laterally, they don't have much lateral growth, right? Um, whereas a dicot would have woody tissue and have a bark and things like that. So the banana is a monocot and it's a herb, right? but it does produce a fruit right and that fruit um if you go back and this is we could want to have another talk about uh heirloom varieties and the traditional varieties of plants you know bananas typically had seeds in them and were bred to for the seeds to be uh swallowed and essentially non-existent but if you go and find more traditional uh banana varieties they have seeds in them some of them are edible, um, and a lot of them are really colorful. Tending for potatoes. If you want to look at potatoes, you go to Chile and South America. Potatoes uh, come in all colors and shapes, from purple to red and orange, spotted. And there's, there's, there's any number. You can have a whole potato sundae, right? Uh, just talking about potatoes and heirloom varieties of plants. And so. Um, that, that brings up the discussion when people get into, okay, well, what am I going to grow? Am I going to grow a, a genetically modified organism, a GMO plant, or am I going to grow uh, something that's heirloom? And you can, you can have access to those seeds, depending on where you're buying from. Um, seed sellers, they sh should give you that option, depending on where you're going, where you're buying from. But those heirloom varieties would be some of those bigger beefsteak tomatoes and things like that wouldn't have been bred um, excessively. At some point, there was probably some crossing, but 
the heirloom varieties of those, but they try to remain as true to type as possible. You know, it's funny, you talk about tomatoes, and I had thought about this earlier. I always tell people I think that my dad has the greenest thumb ever because he'll throw things out in our yard and it'll grow. And he has these yeah. cherry that he got from the food store, and a couple of them went bad. So, of course, in throwing them out in the yard, they've grown. And this vine is producing cherry tomatoes that are like as big as my palm, same shape, <laughs> but humongous to the point where I got scared when I saw the first one. I was like, why would this? I would think that because it's probably that modified, it would only these seeds would only produce, you know, these small cherry tomatoes. And is that a fluke? Is that a mutation? Like, would you, could you shed light on that, maybe? Well, um, so one of the uh, one of the things you find that with seeds is that there is always genetic variability, right? So you can have um, you can have a plant that wasn't bred any sort of way that didn't have any intentional breeding to select for a particular variety, um, that you take all of, you take, say you take 100 seeds and you sow them out, and among that 100, you will find that that dominant character is probably present, sorry, present in a majority of, of that uh, progeny, uh, but there's gonna be one that stands out, or a couple of them that look a little different. Either the leaves may be larger or smaller, the stem may be thicker or thinner, the fruit set may uh, happen at a different time. It may be sweeter, it might have a different color. So there's always genetic variation in seeds. And so when it gets down to that where if you really want something true to type, um, guaranteed, then that's where you get into cloning. And so either you're taking a cutting of a plant or that you're gonna air layer a plant um, and then, or you're gonna graft something. That's, that's how you would get, you would assure your true to type variety but as long as you're planting the seed there's always going to be some genetic variability um, and yeah so what is interesting now is that when you harvest that tomato that looks different than from the plant that looks different than the parent fruit and you take those seeds dry them and sow those out and then you watch what happens with those offspring now this is again an experiment now right uh, this kind of like what they're teaching us about Gregor Mendel in high school with all the pea plants and selecting for the certain pea flower and crossing and all this stuff. Um, but that's essentially, if you're interested, what you can look for. And you plant those seeds now, will I still get this same fruit shape and set and type? Um, maybe if you get 10 of them to grow, one of them will produce that same fruit type. So make sure you pick from that fruit and keep planting those seeds. And that's one way for you to select and you can have that variety all for yourself because you picked up through your powers of observation, right? <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. And I like that Lindy kind of put out my neighborhood, but yeah, Coral Harbor being closer to the water table. Um, I don't even know if we want to dive into that topic, but back on the bananas for two seconds, I feel like I've heard that you can't plant a banana seed. You only have to, you have to be able to take the shoot out and put it into the ground. Is that true? Yeah, you need to plant the sucker. Now, once again, if this is our modern edible bananas that we all have in the supermarket that um, that we're, we're buying and, and, and eating, uh, some of the traditional varieties that, may, that you may still find in the wild and that are native to Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, those would probably still have viable seeds and some of those wild types that you can plant as an ornamental. Now, for the edible type, once again, it's my understanding that modern banana was was selectively bred um, to be edible and without seeds now there may be an edible type out there with seeds uh, once again nature gives us all possible um, all, nature provides all possibilities right? um, but yes for you to successfully transplant a banana like what you have in the store you need to go to the mother plant and get the sucker from the bait which is you know an offshoot you know bananas they produce suckers all the time um, you can just simply, you know, if it's high enough on the tree, uh, it's usually sturdy enough that you can just pop it off um, and you just let it, give it a day for it to dry so that you don't, a day or so to dry so that you're not introducing that exposed surface to your soil and to the fungi in there that may um, negatively impact your plant. Make sure that that layer is essentially sealed off. Or you can use like a cutlass or a knife and slice off those suckers. Um, and with bananas, bananas, they come, you know, they're native to areas uh, in Asia uh, that receive the monsoon weather. 
um, and they grow in areas with lots of water. So essentially, by rule of thumb, you can never overwater a banana, right? I'm going to say, I don't want to tell you to waste water trying to, but essentially, if you have your yard and you have a low point in your yard, you should plant bananas there. Um, uh, there's, there's people who, in their homes, where they have their washing machine and that uh, outlet pipe that takes the wash water um, out to the garden. Um, bananas, they'll survive near that too. They love that. They'll thrive on that. Um, so you can never overwater a banana. And so one of the things you can do when you're planting a banana is you dig a hole that's nice and wide and deep. Um, I would say you dig a, you know, three feet or more wide because you want to make sure you're breaking up enough soil around it. So when those suckers start to form as it grows, it doesn't have, um, it, it isn't pushing through rocky soil or encountering rock that'll impede its growth. Um, and then you go down deep enough so that it can, it can hit the water table, quote unquote, right? It, it's going to go down searching for water. Uh, but yeah, you can't, you cannot overwater bananas. That's the, that's the, that's the, the lesson, the take home lesson. If I kill my daddy banana plant, I can blame you. <laughs> if I go then just uh, go. Uh, well, when it little down, I go, wait, wait, step <laughs> So when it's small, when it's small, give it a chance, right? It, it likes to drink. It's very leafy. It holds tons of water. I don't know if you've ever, yeah, if you've ever chopped down a banana tree, it holds tons of moisture. And so, because because bananas do not have woody tissue, the way its anatomy is designed is that it uses water to maintain its humidity, right? And so uh, for those leaves to stay upright and for the plant to be okay, it needs to have water. You'll, when a banana is really thirsty, you'll see the entire stalks will, will start to droop. The entire thing will droop, not just the leaves, because water helps it stay upright. For whatever reason, if I get lost in Bahamian bush and I see a banana tree, I can get water from that tree. Well, let's put it like this. I'll replace I'll replace the banana with if you're lost somewhere out in the bush and you see a sable palm, then yeah. If you see a sable palm, you know that uh, water is relatively close to the surface. Uh, the same thing as if you're in a pine forest. If you see pine, then you know you don't you don't need to go down more than. Uh, typically one and a half to three feet before you hit the water table and pine lens. And so I would say, look out for those. If I see banana, if I see a banana plant in the middle of the bush, that means somebody living nearby and I need to go to next way. Fair. Awesome. <laughs> oh, questions in the comments. Um, and I'm sure that we could talk to no end on this topic. So great, great for planning around septic tanks. Very it interesting. Is. It is. Yeah. Uh, one, it'll thrive on the excess nitrogen that may uh, spill out of the soak away from time to time um, and whatever moisture might accumulate there, they, they will, they'll thrive. There's, there's actually, okay, this is the last thing I talk about bananas. So there's actually a, uh, you could, there's a way that you can plant bananas essentially as a, a an integrated with a composting um, system. And so essentially you plant a ring of bananas. Let's say you dig a big hole in the ground. Let's say you dig it about six to eight feet across, um, four, five, six feet deep, right? Nice big wide hole. And so the mound that's around the edge, you can plant bananas in the mound, right? Along the edge. Plant them, space them, maybe like two or three feet apart. You can plant them uh, on the backside of the mound, on the top of the mound, and kind of disperse them. However, um, um, we, you can then use the center of that banana circle, as it's called, as a way to throw all of your composting material in there. And so this is on your farm. Essentially, you might have had a compost pit already. We are throwing all of your, your used uh, plant material and things you're weeding off of the farm into this pit that some people burn, but you should really allow them to compost and break down naturally. So if you got a compost pit that was circular that you dug into the ground along the perimeter, you plant bananas, those bananas will start to grow and thrive. They're going to feed into all that nice organic compost that's growing in the center. Um, keep it cool, and essentially your bananas are just going to flourish. And it's a, it's a perpetual feeding system for them. Um, and you should try it out. You should Google it. Banana circle. Put your compost pit in the middle. I've seen where people have made outdoor showers using bananas in a similar manner. 
where essentially they take a ring of bananas and plant them at varying heights and they space them out appropriately. And once they're in full, full growth, they're adults, they essentially provide a screen that's impenetrable. Um, some people now they plant um, bananas along fences for privacy, as privacy screens. And so it's essentially taking that idea of using bananas for privacy. Yeah, it's kind of like a keyhole garden, right? So you essentially plant the perimeter of your outdoor shower with bananas um, and you put your spigot there. And every time you shower, your bananas will love you because they love water. They like to drink. <laughs> yes. That is, actually, that's really informative. That was, that was good. And yeah, a keyhole garden, I don't know what that is. Can you just quickly say what that is? Is that just a similar yeah. concept? Yeah, do I have a key nearby? So essentially, it's if you were to um, the simplest of I say the simplest of what the simple ways to design a garden is, or when you're designing a garden is you have to think about how you're going to move around your space. So if I if I think of a a keyhole that has a kind of like a slender path and then kind of a rounded top where um, the the wider part of the key will fit. You, if you think of this, and there's two ways you can think about it. You can think of a keyhole garden, and this is now your walking path. This is the shape of your walking path. And so along the perimeter, you have your plants growing. So essentially, you can access all of your crops through this path and through the circular access in the middle, right? And so kind of like a keyhole garden, she's saying for a keyhole garden, you plant your, put your plants along the perimeter of your pathway. And as you're walking along, you have access and usually you give it like three feet. That's usually, you know, you don't want to bend over too much. Uh, four feet, then you probably have to access it from both sides. But three feet is usually good enough for you to stand or kneel there and reach in and harvest and do whatever uh, God maintenance you need. But yes, yeah, kind of like a keyhole garden. So planning is definitely very important for gardening. Because as you said that in my mind, I thought, you know, I would definitely be that one person to start a garden and the middle would have fruits and I'd be like, no, I, I got to trample through my garden to get to this fruit. So great tip. Um, and again, I don't really see any questions. Thank you guys for all these comments. I don't want to keep you Mark because I'm probably going to want you back on other shows, but just like an <laughs> end thought, um, if you had to say, and you can choose not to, I almost kind of feel like what you will say. If you had to say what the best Island in the Bahamas is for planting or for plants, whether it be elevation, water table, its proximity um, to other islands, you know, different things. I know Inagua gets that salty air, so they have that bonsai forest thing going on. So I don't know if you pick Inagua, but what island is the best island to farm on or to plant on? That's a baited, that's a baited question. You're going to cause me to get, uh, get trouble with that. Um, I would say islands where there are, where there is a good freshwater lens, that would be the primary. Um, I, I would look for those islands primarily because once you have access to fresh water, that um, that solves a good portion of your problems. Now, um, and those, as we say, are the Pine Islands. So that's Grand Bahama, Abaco, Andres, New Providence. That would have a ready, uh, a readily available supply of fresh water in the freshwater lens. Um, now we're not getting into the threats to our freshwater lens and blah blah blah. We're just saying. Those with more available fresh water might make sense that that would be would be more amenable to farming. Uh, other air, other islands also have fresh water. You just have to know where to find it and how to site your farm appropriately. Um, apart from that, across most of our islands, if not all of our islands, our soils are relatively thin, um, generally, and alkaline, and so. Because we're limestone based, uh, for the most part, our soils are alkaline, and the pH of your soil is a is a major um, factor on the nutrition and nutrient availability for your plants. And so, if your soil is too alkaline, you may have added all of the nitrogen, all of the other elements that your plants need, but because the pH isn't right, it it cannot it cannot assimilate those nutrients into its root structure just because of the chemistry that's going on in the soil. Uh, so soil is really the limiting factor when it comes to where you're going to grow in the Bahamas. And so for any farmer, they need to consider how they are going to amend their soil um, and how they're going to continue to amend it uh, throughout their growing, throughout their growing life. 
And so um, growing on an elevated area um, versus a flat land, those come with uh, those come with different considerations. But let's say, for example, on some of the Atlantic-facing islands, so Cat Island, Long Island, Eleuthera, there has these the prominent ridge system that has these very high dunes and this kind of rolling hill system. You tend to find that in the the valleys between hills that you find some of that good dirt, that good red soil has accumulated, right? And so for those particular islands, you may find it's better to grow down in the valley one because it's closer to the water table and you'll be able to hit that um, more readily if you needed to dig in. And two, this is where maybe a lot of the nutrients have kind of washed in. Um, if you're in Andres and you don't have the hills, but uh, what you do have in Andres are lots of um, little sinkholes and small uh, mud-filled kind of uh, karst features. And so you have parts of Andres, particularly in the south where in the forest is essentially littered with holes that are about, let's call it 10, 15, 20 feet across, maybe five, six, seven feet deep, and the bottom is just strictly saturated mud and soil. And it doesn't always have standing water, but these are areas that stay wet. And in those areas, you can plant crops, and essentially, you don't need to water them. And so it's all about knowing your land and knowing your space and having a, a good idea of the sense of place of where you're, where you're growing and using your powers of observation. And that was a quote from Super Grover, right? <laughs> Super Grover, yes. Thank you so much, Mark. This has truly been such a great talk. Thank you for everyone that tuned in. And I'm gonna to try to incorporate an exit sentence, which is, remember in the Bahamas, we are not separated by water, we are connected by it. Have a great okay. time, everyone. <laughs> Thanks again, Mark. <laughs>